it sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love your begin with prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all who have come today. Lord, we want to hide your word in our heart that, Lord, that we might not sin against you, to understand you, to know you, Lord. You are your word, and to know your word is to know you, Lord, and to understand your word is to understand you, Lord. And we ask uh, for spiritual understanding that you will illuminate our minds and our hearts to thy word, O God, in Jesus name so we have come to the call of Abraham and we will begin in Genesis the 12th chapter beginning at verse 1 the Bible reads now the Lord had said unto Abram and we understand he was called Abram before he was called Abraham get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, at this time, Abraham was 75 years old. And uh, he lived in Mesopotamia among idolaters. His family worshipped other gods. But God called him. And when God chooses a man or a woman, obedience to God's call always results in separation. We come out from among the world and we separate ourselves unto God. Abraham separated from his family, his land, his nation, his people, and their gods. He was 75. He had probably settled down. He had wealth. He had land. But God called him to a land he could not see and called him to a land that he would show him. Now that's what faith is. I have never seen heaven. I have never seen the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. But faith is seeing the invisible and esteeming it to be more valuable than the visible. I'm telling you that heaven is more valuable to me than this entire world with all of its glory, with all of its beauty. And the face of Jesus Christ, which I have never seen, is more valuable than anything that this world can offer because by faith we see the invisible as if it is. So through faith, 
Abraham left the only home he knew, taking all his servants, his wife, and his nephew Lot with him. Now God made seven promises to Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis. Number one, you might want to write this down. You know I like the number seven, and this might become a question. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. That's number two. Number three, and make thy name great. Number four, and thou shalt be a blessing. Number five, and I will bless them that bless thee. Number six, and curse him that curseth thee. And finally, number seven, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. It's a sevenfold promise that God gave to Abraham. And we'll continue in verse four. So Abram departed. I'm going to say, everyone's probably going to hear me say the name different. The problem that I'm having is in Hebrew, his name is Avram or Avraham. In English, it's Abraham or Abram. But whenever I see Abram, I automatically go to the Hebrew and start reading it with a mixture of Abram. So, but it's Abram. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. Now, Abraham was a great man, but like many of us, he had trouble believing God and taking him at his word. We're going to see that throughout the life of Abraham. That Abraham would be tested by God. Would have to go, he would have to continue to go through the same form of testing until he finally got it right. Does that sound familiar to anyone who's been living for God? God will continue to send you through the same test till you get it right. And then at the end when you get it right, he'll call you righteous. Isn't that beautiful? And it's almost like none of that stuff ever happened because you finally learned to trust in him. This entire walk is about trusting the Lord, trusting God. And he was a great man, but he had trouble believing God and taking him at his word. God told him, get thee out of thy country. He did that. And from thy kindred. He did not do that. And from thy father's house. He did that. We see him taking his nephew Lot with him. He must have had some kind of relationship with him. And felt he could not leave him behind. But he took him with him. And verse 6. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem. Unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. That's going to become a very important place to us. And pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. 
And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So we see here the continuance of building altars to the Lord. We saw Abel build an altar. We saw Noah build an altar. God's people are altar builders. Amen. And if you'd like to apply to be an altar builder, see Sister Tanya uh, Hendricks, amen, and she'll sign you up. Amen. God's people are altar builders, and we need to build our own altars. We need to build our own altars. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know thou art a fair woman to look upon. This is actually going to become a very common occurrence in the book of Genesis. And he says to her, Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Now God had promised this man. I am going to give you all the land of Canaan. All that you can see. And I am going to give you your own seed. And all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And he did not have a child. He did not have a son. And Sarah was barren. But had he believed God. Now think about this. If God tells you, you are going to have a son, and you don't have a son, that means you are going to live. Right? Might be a good time if you're young enough. Well, God says, I'm going to live. I'm going to go be a mercenary. Go hire myself out to Ukraine. Ain't nothing going to hurt me. I'm going to have a son. And no, don't do that. But, but you understand, he did not believe God. And once again, we have a failure in this man who is in the hall of fame of the champions of faith. This is a man in, the, in, the, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the elders obtained a great report. And yet, a failure of faith again. Oh, that makes me happy. Why? Because I know Abraham's already saved. I already know his story. But I, Ricky Taylor now is still being sanctified. Amen. I'm justified by the blood of the Lamb, just as if it never happened. But God's still sanctifying this man. And I still fail him in faith all the time. And I am glad to know that so did Abraham. And so did all of these others. But God says, I'll take this man, Abraham, and I'm going to put him in my hall of fame of the warriors of faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord. Amen. But for some perspective here, Abraham was 75 years old at this time. His wife, Sarah, was 10 years younger. So Sarah was 65 years old and still an extremely beautiful woman. Now, how is this possible? And when you look this up, people try to say, well, the word of God can't be right. Because 
she was an older woman, and yet here it is that she, they're afraid that she's, six, you know, she's 65. She can't be that great looking. But it appears that at this time people are still aging better at this particular time. Their lifespans are shorter than they were earlier in the scripture, but Sarah would live to be 127 years old. So at 65 years old, she was only middle age and apparently appeared much younger. Back then, 65 might have been more like 30, maybe even in 20s. We don't know when the aging process finally hit, but she apparently appeared much younger. In fact, a similar incident will happen because Abraham still doesn't learn his lesson. And the, a very similar incident happens when Sarah is 89 years old. And we find her to still be a beautiful woman. And Abraham asks her again to lie for him because he's still not yet trusting God. So one can assume that age did not show its effects on the body as it does today. And the Bible records she was a beautiful woman even at 89 years old. And I believe that she was. Verse 14, And it came to pass that when Abraham was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, he caused some trouble, didn't he? I mean, all he had to say is, yeah, she's my wife. And, and none of this would have happened. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, and he asses, and men servants, and maid servants, and she asses, and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife, and now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible... We will just read a verse or a section of scripture and take it for what it says. It says what it says. But sometimes if we look a little more closely, we'll see again a pattern. And we have an interesting type here happening to Abraham concerning Egypt. Remember that Abraham would become the father of Isaac. Isaac would become the father of Jacob who would later named, be named Israel. And from him are the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel uh, will go down to Egypt where they will remain for 400 years. They will fall into slavery. They will become slaves of the Egyptians. And then God will redeem them in Exodus from Egypt and bring them to the land that he promised Abraham. Well, look at this type. We see their father Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, there was famine in the land. The Israelites would go down uh, to Egypt because there was famine in the entire earth. And Joseph went before them, and God, through dreams, provided a way that the entire 
world would not starve. And so they went down because there was a famine in the land and Joseph would provide for them. So they went down to Egypt to stay. And we see Abraham going down to Egypt to stay as Jacob and his sons will later go down to Egypt because of the famine. There was an attempt in the book of Exodus to kill the males, but to save the females. And we see that Abraham is concerned that that's what's going to happen. They're going to kill me for my wife. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill the male and leave the female alive. And Abraham was concerned he would be killed. Uh, we have the plagues on Egypt in Genesis 12 and verse 17 that God uh, started to plague Egypt because of what he, of, of taking uh, Sarah into his house, into Pharaoh's house. And uh, so God would later release the plagues on Egypt, Egypt again by the hand of Moses. And then when the children of Israel departed Egypt, they, would, they were to ask their neighbors to borrow all the gold, all the silver, all the fine things, all the copper, everything that they had. And God gave them grace in the sight of the Egyptians. And when they left, they left with a treasure trove of gold and silver. And we see that again, Abraham leaving with great wealth as Israel would leave uh, Egypt in Exodus with the wealth of Egypt as a type of back pay. And of course, the deliverance. Pharaoh tells Abraham to go out of Egypt. And another Pharaoh in the book of Exodus will later say the same thing to Moses and the people of Israel. So we see in this man who is the father of Israel to come, this being played out of him going down into Egypt because of a famine. And we see another type of what would later happen to the people of Israel. And that brings us to chapter 13. And Abram went out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in Gold, And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ahai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord, and Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell Together, This man, Abraham, was very wealthy. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan 
And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. It was beautiful. It was as beautiful as San Francisco. Beautiful as Morro Bay. Just absolutely lovely. Why would he dwell in the desert when he could dwell there and pitch his tent toward Sodom? But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes. And look at this. The Lord said unto Abraham. God now comes back to Abraham the moment Lot is gone. Finally, we got that man out of Abram's life. He was to separate himself. He was not supposed to be with Lot. And now that Lot is gone, the Lord speaks to him. Lift up thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and Westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent, and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Now Abraham, Abraham was very wealthy in flocks, silver and gold, and we read he had so much wealth that the land could not support his flocks and Lot's flocks together. There was arguing among Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen and they decided to separate. Abraham was a gracious guy. He said, "You go to the, if you choose the right, I'll go to the left." And the Bible describes this land that Lot shows as looking like the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden. And he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now that's almost a message that you could preach, and I'm sure that it's been preached many times. And we come to the 14th chapter of Genesis where we see, and I'm not going through the entire chapter. But in the 14th chapter of Genesis, we see a war happen between the cities, including Sodom and four kings. There's a war. Almost like God is wanting to judge Sodom. And there are these four kings. They go in, they seize all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food, they went away. And verse 12 of chapter 14 says, they also carried off. Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now at first we see him pitching his tent toward Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. Then we find him in captivity. That's what happens when you pitch your tent toward Sodom. Let's look at the steps of Lot. He beheld... The beauty of the land. He chose the land. He departed from Abraham. And he dwelt in the plain. Pitching his tent toward Sodom. He didn't pitch it away from Sodom. So when he got out every morning of his tent. And he opened the little flap of his tent. The first thing he saw on the, 
horizon was that beautiful city, Sodom. And then we see that he dwelt in Sodom. And the Bible actually says he was seated in the gate. He wasn't just a citizen of Sodom. He was a council member of Sodom. That's what it means to sit in the gate, to be a judge of those who came in the city. Let me tell you, sin always occurs in small steps, little things. And Sodom and Gomorrah were cities filled with absolute sin and per per perversion and would soon suffer the judgment of God for their terrible sins. When you are attracted to the glittering beauty the world has to offer, you will soon find yourself ensnared and held captive. Abraham chose the backside of the desert. And it's better to be in the backside of the desert with God than the most beautiful, fertile place without God. Lot saw the beautiful land of Sodom, then he entered the city of Sodom, and it will not end well for him or for his family. I read this verse an awful lot, and I've done it a lot throughout Genesis, and it's a very important verse. You may want to memorize it. It's really helped me in my life. 1 John 2 and verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh God, help us. For all, someone say all, that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's what gets us every time. Young preacher, young saint, older saint, if you are ever going to fall into sin, it will be either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. It's all that's in the world. Abraham took 300. Now I want you to think about this man. This man, he's sitting out here in the plains. Obviously got several tents. It's not just one tent. He has 318 trained men in his household. These were men who were trained for war. He had an army of 318 men in his household. He was very rich. Imagine being, being able to produce a small army of trained men from your household. And how many other servants would you need? How many other people in your house would there have to be in order to have and, and maintain an army of 318 men? He was the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk of his day. He was not a small unknown name at all in the world. And attacking at night, he defeated the four kings and rescued his nephew Lot. And we read that the king of Sodom came to thank him and offered him the spoils of war, which Abraham refused. And now in Genesis 14 and verse 18, we come to a very interesting story. It's a story that actually got me in a lot of trouble as a teenager. In Imperial Beach Christian School, Brother Fred. Uh, I don't know if I'll talk about it, but then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That is called a tithe, Abraham paid this man tithes. Now, this is one of the mysteries of the Bible. Who exactly was this Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek that he shows up and Abraham gives him tithe? Uh, we learn a little bit more about him from the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. It reads, this Melchizedek, and that's a... Hebrew name. Sometimes it's one word, sometimes it's two words in Hebrew. But this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, which is what we just read. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So this man whose name is king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. This, uh, this place, Salem, is most likely Jerusalem today. And uh, who do we know that is a high priest, a righteous king, and will rule the world from Jerusalem? And who is the prince the Hebrew word for prince here means chief or ruler. Who is the prince, the ruler, the king of peace? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this aspect, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now what got me in trouble was I was about 17 years old, trying to devour as much scripture as I could as a, as a, as a child still at Imperial Beach Christian School. And when I came up on Melchizedek, I began to do a study of him, and I came up with the idea, as a lot of young Christians do. We just jump on ideas and say, by God, it's in the Bible. I believe that it says that, therefore it must be true, and I believe that Melchizedek must be a theophany. Now, for those of you new to the class, a theophany is a manifestation of God in a physical form. And I believe that Melchizedek must be a theophany. And the Bible reads without father or mother. And I'm going to let you know my views here, here soon. But we're going to continue in verse 3 of uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Without father or mother, without ge genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So in my mind, well, this person has no genealogy, he has no beginning of days, nor end of life. He has no father, he has no mother. He has to be a theophany, and that's what I believed. And there are many thoughts and ideas on who or what Melchizedek was. But I want to bring out one part of this verse, chapter three, in chapter 7, verse 3, resembling the Son of God. And we're going to see another word, similitude. Now, we've been studying similitudes since the, book, the beginning of the book of Genesis. And so we have to understand that God has similitudes, types, shadows in his word. And there are many thoughts and ideas on who or what Melchizedek was. Some believe he was 
a theophany or a manifestation of God. And the late G.T. Haywood, we might know who he is, especially some of us older Pentecostals. He's the one who wrote, I see a crimson stream of blood and thank God for the blood. And that's what we used to sing. Remember back in the day we used to sing the songs of G.T. Haywood. He is or was the bishop of the Pentecostal assemblies of the world. Amen. And a great songwriter. He wrote a book about this man Melchizedek and he believed that he was a theophany. And believe me, when I found that book, I marched right up to the pastor's office because what happened was my parents got upset and said, what are you teaching my son? And it became a big deal. And I got called into the pastor's office for believing that Melchizedek was a theophany. And, and boy, they, they read me the riot act. And so, you know, how many people know me? You know, when I get a little evidence, I'm, I'm going to come right at you, right? And I love you guys, but it's my nature. God's working on me. I'm not there yet. Amen. But I got that book. And I went marching up to Brother Galoni's office. And I went up and I put it on his desk. And I said, you know who GTA what is? He said, of course I do. I said, he believed Melchizedek was God. And I turned around and I walked out. <laughs> and I felt good about myself. However, I no longer believe that Melchizedek was God. I do not believe that that is what the Bible says. I do not hold that view. But it is apparent Melchizedek is a type or similitude of the Lord Jesus. And we need to remember as we read our Bibles. And the more we read it, the more we'll understand. That God knows absolutely everything about absolutely everything. Somebody said, can man actually change? I was asked that by Brother Isaac today. Can man cause God to change his mind? Yes. And no. There's a whole lot of things like that in scripture that are yes and no. Are we predestinated? Yes. And no. Both these things can happen in the scripture. Yes, God did predestinate. We know that he did. The Bible says very clearly he did. But you have a free will. And the Bible says very clearly that you do. How does that work? I don't know. I'm not that smart. But I can tell you this, God knows absolutely everything about everything. But the purpose of the scripture is not to teach you everything that God knows. The purpose of the scripture is to reveal to us only what he wants us to know in order to accomplish his purposes. And of course, his main purpose is our salvation. And the restitution of all things. And once we're with him, I think he'll be glad to answer a lot of our questions. And I've got a lot of them. I'm going to be up there for a million years just asking questions and taking notes and learning as much as I can about the things of God. Amen. And I believe, and you've heard me say it, and I believe this with all of my heart. You will never get to the end of the Bible. Never. You'll never get to the end of it. And I don't mean revelation, the last word, amen. Okay, I don't mean that. You'll never get to the end of understanding that word. And when I say never, I mean never. I don't believe you will in this life, and I don't believe you'll you will in the life to come. I believe that throughout all of eternity, the word of God is so uh, uh, unexhaustive, unreachable, un 
uh, just it's eternal as he's eternal. That for all of eternity we will see new ways that God saved us. And the things that he did to bring us to him throughout all of eternity. I believe that with all of my heart. Because the more that I study the word of God, the more I realize it is endless. And it will make a new connection. Every time you read it, you'll have a new connection and a new connection and a new connection with this verse and that verse and this idea with that idea. And I believe we will be studying it, reading it, or having it memorized for all eternity and still new, see new things. And as I mentioned and will mention dozens of times as we travel through the Bible, God uses types and shadows, similitudes and patterns. I believe Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a man. God revealed to us only enough about him, this man, to make him a type in scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ as both a king and a priest. Surely he had a father and a mother, but his genealogy was not included in order to show him as being a priest forever or a type of Jesus. In this, Melchizedek was made in the scriptures to resemble the Lord in the function of priest. And I'm going to continue in, uh, with verse 4 of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he, was, he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed them that had the promises and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So notice here that the Bible says Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, evidenced by the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and, of course, Abraham paid tithes to him. Verse 8, and, they, and here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so, so say, and I want you to listen to this verse very carefully, what, what's going to say here. Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. An interesting idea here. Levi would come out of Jacob, and, and, and Levi would become the priestly tribe. So all of the priests who collected the tithe, the Levites who collected the tithe, would come out of Levi. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Levi was also paid tithes. And he's one who received tithes, but he paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of his father Abraham. Now that's some strange logic, and that's the way the rabbis think. So if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand kind of the way the rabbis think. And it's an interesting, interesting idea here. And remember Paul, who I no doubt wrote the book of Hebrews. We'll come to that when we get to the book of Hebrews. But Paul was a rabbi, and he had some interesting logic. And he said that Levi, who was the son of Jacob and who was the father of the priestly tribe... The Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of Abraham. Now, is it possible then that we benefit from what our ancestors did for God? Yes. Hallelujah. Thank God. I had a great grandmother who prayed and, and worshipped God. And because of that, 
God blessed her generations. Isn't it good to know that he does? The Bible bears this out. And the opposite is true as well. Let's look at Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord, the Bible says, is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting. Listen to what he says. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Be careful, fathers, what you do. Be careful, fathers, what you do. Deut Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says something that is pretty much similar, but the opposite side of the coin. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So I can affect the third and fourth generation by doing evil. But by doing righteously and doing good and loving God, God can bless a thousand generations for me. Beautiful to know. And I have noticed, and you, I'm sure you have as well, that the sins of grandfathers and fathers seem to be handed down from generation to generation. We often see chemical dependency. We see other sins. We see Depression, we see suicide even, handed down from generation to generation as if there is a generational curse. And there is. There is. And praise God that we as Christians can break the generational curses by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus became a curse for us that we might receive blessing. And we can reverse the generational curse and our children can receive blessings for generations to come. Now I want to finish with this man, Melchizedek. I want to get through this in this session. So we're going to continue again in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. Now what is the writer of the book of Hebrews saying? Let me boil this down. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was the tribe of the kings. He had no right under the law to call himself a priest, much less the high priest. He had no right to the Levitical priesthood. And yet he is our high priest. And you have no right to the Levitical priesthood because you are not a Jew and you are not a Levi, the son of Aaron from the Kohathites. You had to be born a priest. You have no right to, to the priesthood. And yet you're a priest. In fact, the Bible says you're a royal priesthood. We're kings and priests. But not after the order of the Levites. So verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. For under it the people received the law. What further need was there. That another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek. And not be called after the order of Aaron. 
For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In other words, Jesus did not give, he was not from a tribe that gave attendance at the altar. He was not of the tribe of the Levites. He was, he was, there were the, the three families, the Kohathites, the Merariites, and the Gershonites. And the Kohathites, you know this, the Kohathites were the priestly tribe. They were the priestly family of the tribe of Levi. But neither could he even give, uh, he, he couldn't even give attendance at the altar because he was of the tribe of Judah, of the, of, of the family of David. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident for that after the similitude, there's that word, of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we find that in Psalms 110 and verse 4, speaking of the Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul was not, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, I believe him to be Paul, the writer of the book of Hebrews did not make this up. It was already prophesied in the book of Psalms that he would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. He made atonement for us and inhabits the true tabernacle of God, not made by hands. He is our mediator between us and God. Remember, he is both man and God. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And now I'm going to end with this. Melchizedek showed up. And he offered gifts. And the gifts that he offered were bread and wine. He brought bread and wine. And in Matthew 26, 26, we have the Last Supper. The Bible reads, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup or the wine and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Nothing in the Bible is written by accident. I know that this is deep tonight, and I'm here to answer any questions you have. Jesus is our high priest. He's of the tribe of Judah, but he's our high priest after the order of this man Melchizedek. And his sacrifice was bread. His offering was bread. As Melchizedek gave gifts to Abraham of bread and wine, Jesus gave his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. So we see here in the story of Abraham and Melchizedek the emblems of bread and wine, the emblems of communion. Can I tell you that nothing in the Bible is by accident? Now we went deep. We went deep today. Can somebody say amen? amen? Amen. And if we have any questions, this time they do not have to be in writing. I will answer them at the end. Amen. And I want you to continue in your Bible reading all the way up, praise the Lord, to Genesis chapter 21. 
Amen. And we're going to get into some of the best parts of the book of Genesis very soon. And I'm excited to do so. But for now, let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. God, your word is truth. And we thank you for the offering that you give, Lord, as our priest, as our high priest forever before the throne of God in heaven, before the ark which is in heaven, Lord. The giving of your blood, Lord, upon the mercy seat. The giving of your body, the bread which is broken for us. We love you and we appreciate you. And we give ourselves to you, Lord, as you gave yourself to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.